my first big op under fire, it ate me up inside. And so it became one of my driving factors to shore up any deficiency I had and not put medicine on the back burn like some guys did because it was fun being an operator. My job wasn't necessarily to be a shooter. It was to be the rescue guy, to be good at medicine. And I, I worked really hard to shore those up for, for the rest of my career. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we speak with retired Air Force Chief Master Sergeant Chad McCoy. Chad is an Air Force pararescueman, a PJ, with 17 combat deployments around the globe, who ultimately became the senior enlisted leader of the elite 24th Special Tactics Squadron. In this episode, Chad talks about his journey to becoming a PJ and shares some behind the scenes stories from high profile rescue missions and his diverse combat experiences providing medical care under fire in austere locations. He provides some great advice and lessons learned from his distinguished leadership experience and shares his passion for innovation and entrepreneurship in the military and beyond in the civilian sector. Find out more about Chad McCoy and our previous guests on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Air Force Chief Master Sergeant Chad McCoy to Wardox. Chad, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Chief Master Sergeant McCoy, tell us your story about how and why you joined the Air Force. Only if you don't call me Chief Master Sergeant McCoy the rest of the podcast okay. and call me Chad. All right, Chad. Yeah. Yeah. So my, my journey started as a, a scrawny kid from Hawaii, living in the water, surfing every day, and really excited about doing something as adventurous as being a pararescuement. And I started that journey when I was a senior in high school, knowing that I probably wasn't going to be an academic scholar. I wasn't going to get a, any free rides to college. And so the military was a good option for me. And I, I started that journey out of Hawaii, learning how to run, swim, but candidly, I had no idea what I was getting into at the time. So that kind of opened Pandora's box for me and the rest was kind of a wild ride. So is that something that you wanted to do something medical or was it you really was on more on the the rescue side? Yeah. So this was mid nineties and we weren't at war. The services all had other stuff and variant, if you will, but in lieu of war, who gets the mission? And so I didn't really know what I was, how I was discerning military service. But I knew pararescuemen were always busy. If they weren't at war, they were rescuing people outside the mountains. I had a, a men's health magazine that I was reading, and it was a, a story of a, a PJ named Scotty Guerin, who had just been in a, a free fall accident. He had fallen, I forget how many thousands of feet, bounced, survived. They showed his recovery. The guy was a stud. I ended up having the good fortune to shake his hand later in my career. But I was like, man, these are, these are serious guys doing serious work. When I looked in the mirror, I didn't necessarily see that same kind of cut, but hopefully I grew into the role and left a good legacy for guys behind me as well. So tell us a little bit about PJ training and the medical part. We've talked to folks who have gone through 18 Delta, that pathway, and also the special amphibious recon corpsman in the Navy. How is the pararescue different as far as the medical training? Well, it wasn't because I went to the 18 Delta course. 
We had a, a few years where they were sending PJs through the, the short course at Bragg. It was like Sockham light for the PJs. And it was supposed to even out maybe some of the discrepancies in medical training that had happened in the past. But I will tell you, and maybe some of the old instructors are, will listen to this, but we were not welcome in that course. We were a bunch of punk kids. We were like the reluctant soft guys. We weren't really soft guys. We hadn't done anything. And you had more senior army going through the course. They kind of knew where they wanted to be within the SF process for the 18 Deltas. And then you had SEAL corpsmen that were going through there as well. They really didn't want to be there either because they were kind of, they weren't pariahs, but you had the Air Force and Navy guys and everyone else. There weren't Sarks at the time, but yeah, it was, it was an interesting process because uh, they were ramping up the 18 Deltas to go through the long course, right? And so it was kind of like the prep work and getting through the A&P and all the necessary grunt work to get to where you need to be. And we got our EMTI at the course at the time. I didn't stay for my P. They pushed us through, did my ride along to DC. And then I popped out of Sockham as a pseudo graduate. I'll use that term lightly because I didn't understand medicine whatsoever. You know, when I got to my first unit, I was really lacking in a lot of knowledge that was foundational for guys in front of me. And what it's become now, which I talked to a lot of people about, the process is so good now. I mean, you leave those courses, there's so many lessons learned that you learned through the Sockham process that they're, they're capable, right? I didn't, I didn't know anything when I got out. I knew how to recite pharma, pharmacology. I knew exactly what to say, but I didn't really have a whole lot of practical experience. And in my ride-alongs, I didn't get a whole lot of the, the good stuff that, that some of the guys get to see when they go to the major trauma centers like New York, or I think New Orleans is one of them. I didn't have that same experience. And so when I was starting to get real patience, I was already a PJ. And fortunately, they didn't let me run around by myself. I always had someone else with me that was a little bit more experienced for the first few years. So our listeners are hearing us say PJ, and they're not all special operations people. So for those listening, that's an Air Force Special Warfare Pararescue Men. So tell us what is the mission of a PJ and how do they fit into the Air Force Special Operations and Air Combat Command? Yeah, you're right. So there's two two tracks PJs take and and they're not deliberate. It's some of it's just numbers. Hey, we need guys here, guys there. And so if you go to an ACC unit, so an air combat command unit, you're a rescue PJ. And so you are the DOD's 911. You are a rescue guy. Your sole focus in life is to provide rescue recovery. They're the only ones doctrinally that are actually authorized to do it. Like other people do it, SEALs do it, Marines do it. But the PJs are the dedicated asset that's on alert all around the world to rescue, initially to rescue pilots, but really you, you kind of peel back that onion and it, and it meets a lot of other needs across the DoD. And so those are the guys that are on the rescue side, ACC. And then you have guys that go to AFSOC, so Air, Air Force Special Operations Command. And same PJ, they went through the same course, they just got a different assignment. And so there's no magic that says, oh, you're going to be a soft guy and you're a rescue guy, right? And they're in, interchangeable and they often do interchange throughout their career. The only exception is if they go to the reserve unit or a National Guard unit, they are going dedicated to that mission and they'll stay there. I mean, they could still move, but if you're a, a New York guy, that's your mission that you're going to be doing. Those great open ocean rescues that they always do, the guys in Alaska, mountain rescues, California, throw them in the same mix. And, and then they still get to use those combat skills when they go overseas. So the job of a PJ is to really, like I said, be that kind of standby capability in case of an emergency. And so PJs originated out of doctors strapping on parachutes and jumping into the jungle. 
and stay with patients or recovery patients, stay with them for potentially days. And then there was an E&E component to moving people out, right? But what happened over the years is that it became a perception that PJs and aircraft were kind of synonymous. And it was hard for PJs to break away from the umbilical cord of being on an aircraft. And I think that that was a significant impediment to the evolution development of care rescue and what it could have been to serve the GWAT as we went to the GWAT phase. Because if a PJ is predicated on having an aircraft, it becomes kind of a glorified Kazakh medic, right? And so why do you get all this other training? Why do you get scuba diving training and any training and shoot, move, and communicate? You could just get a great medic on the back of a bird and do the same thing. But PJs have a lot of training. Oftentimes we use a very small percentage of that training to get to where we need to go. So after you had that initial training, you're officially a PJ. What was the first kind of real world scenario where you went on a rescue and you said, man, I'm part of the club now? Yeah, it took me a while to feel that. I went to ACC. I went to 66 Rescue Squadron at Nellis Air Force Base and I was the young PJ there. We had a really small team of guys. We didn't have a lot of good equipment. We we're in, in kind of the rack and stack of the units. We were we weren't really well funded. We had a few radios that we shared amongst the team. We had our boats taken away because there was an accident with the Zodiac. And I remember the first time I went out to pick someone up on the helo was a guy watching the helos on a motorcycle. And he crashed his motorcycle watching the 60s that were flying by. He got pretty tore up and we went down there and picked him up and I was like, this isn't a mission. This is like scoop, scooping up a patient, a glorified life flight. And so I wasn't satisfied. I thought I was going to be doing more. I wanted to go be in combat. No one was really in combat at the time. And then I had the opportunity to go over to Okinawa, Japan. I'd only been at Nellis for a year. And the more senior guys and families didn't want to go overseas. And so I jumped at the opportunity as a young single guy. And I found a, a really good team out there where really mature senior guys. They were well-funded and equipped. I really learned a lot. I learned a lot from senior guys who were not only experts at, at their craft, but also were able to relay and train some of the doctrinal stuff to me as a young pup. And so you asked me my first mission out there. I did a bunch of rescues. Locally, we would have big typhoon comes in. Someone needs rescue out of water. Did a bunch of those. We had an F-15 that spun out as he's flying, ejected, picked him up. Um, but really one of the ones that stood out to me was a, a U-2 rescue. He had ejected in a spacesuit, broke his back, landed into a pseudo rice paddy like mud. We had to hoist him out. And I was fortunate enough to link up with him here in town in Florida. He lives actually in the same city as me. We went and had lunch. It's a great guy. It's just really providential that we were able to link up later on in life. That was the first rescue that I, I used skills that other people don't have. Was I the, the, the required asset? Yeah, I was. And so that was my first taste of like doing something that I thought was almost exceptional at the time, but I had no clue what my career was going to become later on. So the pilot breaks his back. How did you get there? And then what did you do? Yeah. So we weren't on alert because the U2s are flying all the time. They fly at really high altitudes, not really at, at any risk of being shot down. And he had an engine malfunction, limped it across the border. He ejected, bird hit into, the wreckage was strewn across, and gas, the gas station was on fire. I mean, it was a mess. They called us and asked us if we could respond. We jumped on the 60s, went out there and, and located where he's at the parachute, mucked through all the mess. I actually think we hoisted down to the, into the patties and 
we moved over to him. He's complaining about back pain. And we roll him over, you know, all the processes you take to be very considerate of not exacerbating the injury. There's really no way to feel his C-spine through that suit. But we treated him as if it was when we hoisted him up in the Stokes litter with a tagline, get him to the bird. He went back to the clinic there at Osan, and I stayed there to recover a lot of the wreckage. So it wasn't necessarily any spectacular medical treatment on my part. It was certainly just the process of evacuating somebody. But it made me feel like, hey, this is PJ work. It checks the block for me. So you're in Okinawa, 9-11 happens. You're far, far away from the action. How did you wind up getting connected with the soft side of the PJ mission? During 9-11, there was a typhoon in Okinawa. And so in Okinawa, you'd have these typhoon parties because the base would shut down. And I was spending the typhoon party with a, a friend of mine, a teammate of mine, Nick McCaskill. Nick McCaskill was later killed in Afghanistan years later. But Nick, Nick's family had gone back to the mainland. And so I was spending time at his house and we're, we're having cocktails. And, and then we were watching the news and we seen 9-11 take place. And uh, he got called in. He was at the, he was at the AFSARC side in Okinawa. And I was at the rescue side. And my job was very vanilla at that point. No one recalled me. I wasn't going to war. They didn't need me. And so I ended up going to the Philippines. When the Philippines started churning, they called it OEF Philippines. And so we had a MH-47 crash out there with AFSOC guys on it. Two, two of my friends out there, Bill McDaniel and Juan Riddow, were killed in that crash. And they sent our rescue force out there to Zamboanga, and we would provide combat search and rescue for the forces that were doing things in conjunction with the Filipinos. And I spent about a year doing that. Yeah, I was deploying, they, well, deploying, I use that loosely, but I was going to the Philippines, then I'd go to Korea and back and forth and doing exercise in between. And I was reading the Stars and Stripes out in Okinawa and reading about these SF guys or about these remote locations, launching 40 millimeter at these Taliban. But they were doing what I assumed I was going to be doing with my career. And it really ate me up. I uh, ended up having an ulcer when I was out there. I was so stressed out that I wasn't part of the war. I'd done all this training. I thought I was really special and I wasn't being utilized for my skills. And so I made a commitment to myself that I was going to find a way to go to war. And there was a special unit that I knew if I went there, I was definitely going to war. But if you just get a PCS, if you just PCS to an assignment, I could have gone to the schoolhouse and been an instructor. I could have gone to another unit that wasn't deploying there. And so I made my mind that I was going to go try out for a special unit, or if they, if they didn't take me because I was a young guy, I was going to get out of the military and go contract to Blackwater. And I, I was very clear in my head. I had my pathway. I was going to go do it. And so I was actually in alert in Alaska uh, with those guys for a month. When I finished the alert, we flew to DC and I went through a course called OEMS. At the time it was operational emergency medicine. Dr. Hagman was running this course. It was kind of a provocative at the time for the things he was teaching and I loved it. And after that, I flew down to Fort Bragg to do assessment. And I was 21. And so they traditionally only took more senior guys, like late 20s, early 30s. That had been the model for years in the 90s is that you couldn't even try out if you're a young guy with that experience. And so I went there and I assess. Assessment was not much more than a a PT test, a metaval, some rescue rope stuff, and then a board. And if you had made it through that initial screening, and you'd also put a package in, so they looked at your, your, your package, your performance reports, et cetera, psych eval, then you would go to an actual selection, which I ended up doing later. But they selected me as a young, young DJ with zero experience. I was really honest with 
them. I told them, I want to be busy. I want to go to war. I think I can do this. But I was honest with them. They don't have experience and I can't back it up. And I think they appreciated the fact that there was a little bit of humility, but also confidence behind that, that I could, I could make something of myself. So you get selected to the 24th Special Tactics Squadron, which is headquartered at Pope Field in North Carolina. Aside from the selection process, what additional training did you have to do once you were part of the unit? Well, we got through selection, long selection. I, I don't even know how many miles the, the ruck is. You do it in under 24 hours. I was in great shape back then, so it wasn't that hard for me. There's some mental toughness that goes along with it, but really it was just kind of a, a rite of passage. We lost a few people along the way. But once we finished that and we gone through a week of just the different events together, assessing psyche and all these different aspects that I learned later when I ran selection, became a way better process, not because of me, but because of what I inherited. But it was kind of a gut check, see how tough guys are. There was a lot of, there's a lot of bias going to selection at the time where they wanted to create guys like them. So as long as you could talk the talk, have the confidence and be likable, you're probably going to get in the door. And then you do another year of training. And so that year of training focuses on a lot of the employment that you need to top you off to integrate with the really high-end Army and, and Navy units. There is high-end rescue recovery rope work. And so lots of time in the mountains, on the side of mountains, lots of confined space rescue training, lots of urban rescues. So working out of decommissioned industrial areas learning how to move really heavy pieces of equipment. And so in excess of like six, 700 pounds, and that's to, that's to move precious cargo within a ship and then really working a lot of the contingencies and then integrating with the aircraft, like the 160th, which is new to everyone that it's, you fly on sixties, but getting on the side of a little bird and flying to a, on top of a building is very different. And then what you guys care about is the medical stuff, right? And so how do you get guys that have kind of a, a peanut butter thin medical training to a high level of efficiency where they're actually useful to a team and potentially where you're working with guys who have medical training as well. Like you have to be better than them, to, but you should be better than them. And so they would send us to a bunch of courses. I went back to OEMS through that process. We did a lot of in-house medicine. We had good doctors at the time and, and IDMTs that would teach us. We did some ride-alongs, but then I was still an EMTI at the time. And so I had to go back through paramedic training because it's a requirement to be a SOCOM PJ, you had to be a paramedic. So I went and did top off training for five months, a paramedic, which was a pain in the butt because I wanted to operate. But yeah, a year of training and then a lot of FMPs, a lot of putting all of the, the tools together and then doing that medicine kind of at the edge, right? So on the side of a mountain, on top of buildings on fire, et cetera. So uh, you kind of explained the, the selection process and kind of an interview with the team. And you got a, a chance to sit on both sides of that chair. You were the interviewee, and then you got to be the guy doing the interview. What advice would you give to folks who are going into that situation? How can they optimize their chances to get selected to something that they want to do that is tough, and a lot of people want to do it? We look at a lot of different factors now, and uh, it's really hard to hide from the process now. The process that I went through, you could fake it for sure. I mean, maybe I faked, faked it a little bit. But now you can't hide from it. So you're judged by your peers with 360s. There's software that basically analyzes everything you do. There's constant input from everyone around you. And so your behavior, how you interact with anyone who comes in contact with you, everyone is selecting you. And so it could be as simple as me coming up and talking to you just man to man and saying, hey, look, how's this event going? What are you thinking? It doesn't have to be also, it doesn't have to be aggressive. 
we want to get inside their head. We want to understand how they think. And my advice is to be honest, right? Because a lot of the, the biases that we had previously, we try to train them out of our cadre and all the folks that are doing selection. We, we work really hard to address biases and then take those away from the selection process. And so we're looking for people obviously that have fit, but that doesn't mean that you, you, we're looking for all extroverts or all introverts. We want both. When I say the term diversity, we want diversity of thought. We want people that look at problems differently. We certainly want high IQ, EQ, if we can get it. We want problem solvers. But the secret sauce is really, there's, there's a magic eye of the cadre that goes through the process that really knows the people that are going to be so successful through training. You can train a lot of the stuff that we do, but some of the things that are, the, the things that we're looking for as more of the red flags are probably more important than the positive attributes. We don't want someone who's going to lie to us or deceive us you know, the training. We want high integrity folks. They need to be able to integrate with other teams and have a high moral compass, have very clear ethics. Some of that is taught as a kid, right? Growing up. And some of it can be tarnished over the years, being exposed to different things. And so if we get older guys and they've been around for a bit, maybe they know how to game the system. And that's a red flag for us. So you have more than 14 combat deployments under your belt. Can you give us an example of one that stressed your personal medical capabilities and those of your unit? And what lessons did you learn from that? Yeah, my first big, my first big off I went on that you know, there was a lot of food and I had a bunch of casualties and I was by myself. I was only PJ. And usually when you go on a big, big target like that, you'll have two PJs now, minimum two PJs. And people start, the units that we worked with started to understand how important it was to have a PJ so they'd have one per troop. I was solo and I went on to one of the initial targets and we had a bunch of shooting. We did an explosive breach, went in there, grabbed a bunch of people. So I'm with the team. Then I get the call over radio, PJ, we need you, whatever building it was. And so I dropped my, my prisoner off and I run to their compound and it's under fire and there's fire all around us. And I get over there, I'm like, who's shot? And one of the Navy guys shot the legs and another guy was shot in the head. And another guy, I mean, it was just casualties and casualties. I'm like, holy crap, but I've never, you know, never even think this is going to happen to me. And I just humped about eight hours to the mountains. And so I was kind of lean and mean with what I'd brought. I made the, the fatal mistake of bringing a pull-less litter. If you guys remember the old pull-less litters, they were made of a really durable kind of hybrid material. But man, to carry a, a grown man with full kit on that is a CrossFit workout from hell. And no one was going to carry a pull litter for me. If it, Oftentimes we'd give the Terps Skedcos or, or pull litters back then, and they just leave them at one of the stops and they wouldn't bring it into the target. And so I couldn't chance that. So I had to carry everything on my back. I had the heaviest pack of everybody. And uh, I had these casualties. So one guy shot their legs and it's still under fire as I'm treating him. There's still guys shooting around the walls. And so I drag him across the compound to get him to a safe spot into this kind of like makeshift animal pen. And because the target's certainly not secure and internal to the compound, we're taking fire. And so I'm like, okay, so I, I got some cover on this wall. So I'm going to expose them to his pants off. And he's got this gunshot through the bib. It's bleeding out. It's not, you know, it's for blood, but it's bleeding profusely. And so I throw a, a tourniquet on, but I brought these tourniquets that were, this is back then before anything was standardized, right? So please don't judge me too harshly. It was kind of like the Wild West with medicine, but there was these tourniquets that were really thin tourniquets and they had like a, an aluminum or titanium bar, depending which ones you got. 
and it was like a pure, it was like a, a pure windlass, right? And so you had this and it went onto a, a ring. And so you turned the spar and it went into a ring. And I use these in practice and training. I never actually used it as a tourniquet, right? You never put it full on. And it created an intense pain for him, more so than the gunshot wound. And so I was trying to accommodate him. So I would come off that, grabbed a different tourniquet and I had multiple tourniquets in there. So I tried another and the cat tourniquet had just come out. And this is when they were snapping initially. And so I had about three tourniquets about his knee. I checked his bleeding to stop because the gunshot was right close to his knee. So then I tried to convert to a pressure dressing. At the same time, I had another guy come up to me. He got shot in the head. He's like, Chad, I, like, I shot in the head. I'm like, well, okay, sit down. I'll take you out in a second. And I take off his helmet and the round struck the front of his helmet, bounced off his front of his skull and stuck in the back of his helmet. And I checked his skull. Everything was intact. I'm like, there's nothing I can do for you right now. You just need to keep clearing. And so he went back out. He ended up spraining his ankle later and complained more about a sprained ankle than he's, and his gunshot went to the head. But I went back to treating this patient and I'd been given fentanyl and I had never, I'd never been trained with fentanyl. It was, it was 800 micrograms. And I was just told, Hey, you tape this to their finger and you put it in their mouth. And if they pass out, it will fall back out. Again, this is the first time I ever even seen a fentanyl package and I gave this to his finger, but what I didn't realize was it was broken. And the fentanyl had actually broken in my pocket because we were, we were jumping over walls and all this stuff. And it wasn't doing anything for him. So I ended up giving him morphine IM, which I know you guys are probably like choking on your tongues here and that. But as things started to escalate within the compound, I was like, man, I can't sort of lie on this guy right now. And so just one mistake after another, right? And so as I started doing the pressure dressing on him, another guy come up to me with another injury. It was another sprained ankle. He had tripped and, and cracked his MEGs into his face. And, Maybe he had a broken nose, maybe he didn't, but I was like, this isn't important. So I finally got the bleeding under control. I didn't have the pain managed whatsoever. And I ended up breaking off a Taliban that was on the compound and using it to splint his leg so we could move him in this pole slitter. And I knew this was about to be a hellacious movement because we had to go pretty far. And instantly regretted my decision to bring this pole slitter. And so I'm relaying what casualties I have, what I need. We had 147, was come pick us up on this road. And the combat controller, he's, he's doing his job very well. He takes my data. He's, he's transmitting. I'm hands free. I ended up moving this operator down this hill, but all of the guys I'm with want to be on their guns because everyone's really teed up because we were under a kind of intense fire. So no one wanted to help me. So I had both handles on the side of the pull slitter and other people basically rotating out the other handles. And I am smoked. My, my tongue is the top of my mouth, completely dehydrated completely like unprepared for what I was getting into. We're sliding on the side of a mountain. The 47 almost lands on top of us, came in pretty hot. They were pretty keyed up because of the threat we had. We had a pseudo hot and exfil. They pull him in and I didn't, I really didn't do much. And it turns out he had compartment syndrome. I had my suspicion. That's what it was, but I didn't have the training to even do anything for compartment syndrome. They weren't teaching fasciotomies at the time. And I was like glorified self-aid buddy care is what I provided. And that really ate me out as a PJ. And I came home and, well, I actually, I had to go back on, oh, we did other ops on that deployment. But that was a, it was really an inflection point for me as a, as a medical provider that I had to be better at what I did. And so that mission ended up kind of being the, the catalyst for us for fasciotomies and some advanced care. I got a lot better at pain management. And now guys that are, are carrying ketamine, and, and fentanyl maybe fell, falling out of favor, but 
can do a lot of good with with ketamine. I would have loved to have that training. I would have loved to have that baseline of how to deal with with pain. But I think that was a, a colossal failure on my part. You know, it was my first big op under fire and it ate me up inside. And so it became one of my driving factors to shore up any deficiency I had and not put medicine on the back burner like some guys did because it was fun being an operator. My job wasn't necessarily to be a shooter. It was to be the rescue guy, to be good at medicine. And I, I worked really hard to shore those up for, for the rest of my career. So you talked about this experience. You had regretted the decision to bring the Polis litter. How did your supply of what you carried in change after that experience? I mean, because now you've your 15 deployments, you're the expert. And now you're saying, okay, well, that didn't work. I'm going to go into this next one with a different setup. What was your new setup? Well, I mean, think about where tactical equipment went in general in the course of 20 years of combat. The guys are so well equipped now. And they created a PJ Skedco, right? You could hoist off this cut down Skedco. If I had to do a hoist mission, I would have had to request a Stokes litter, right? And so then you have that delivered, you package and put it back up. So what I started doing later on, especially in, depends on what environment, but in Afghanistan, you have to have a Skedco and you can't just have one, you have to have multiples and you have to expect that your Terp's going to leave it at some blocking position and you're never going to see one of them again. And so how they're, how are they marked? Who knows what to grab? Does everyone know how to unload the Skedco? Cause that's like an advanced skill, right? And if you're by yourself, you have multiple casualties, you're covered in blood and no one's going to help you because they all want to get their, their shoot on. It becomes a selection event in itself. In the city, in Iraq, and those those deployments, we had the Foxtrot litters, which you could drive to a building, at least get them out of the building. And then I would carry pole litters and vehicles. I would dump a pole litter at one of our checkpoints because pole litter is a gold standard if you're going to move, right? I mean, it's good because the pain they asked to move with too. And yeah, so it, that's how it changed over the years. But really, it was mission dependent, and that became a lot more astute on what was required based on the environment, terrain, threat, et cetera. I messed that one up because I tried to go light and you can't always go light as the medic. You get more crap than everybody. And then if you have rescue gear in there as well, like I had ropes in there as well, those are super heavy. And then if you have extrication gear, maybe you have a grinder, cutters, maybe you have jaws of life in your back. You, you better be in really good state because you're gonna be burning some calories those nights. And what about your pain control? How you manage people's pain moving forward? Man, I, I became obsessive about pain control. What I was carrying in pill form, vice injectables, vice sublinguals. And then when the, the atomizers came out, that was a godsend for me because I was like, okay, I can, I can't really mess this one up. Right. But when I became proficient at how fentanyl was working with folks, what dosages were working with guys who maybe had a high tolerance for things like fentanyl for, for some reason or the other or guys that were abusing medications. You had to change your medication approach with the pain control with them. And I had a lot of good practice with our indigenous partners, but it's a completely different approach, right? Because some of them are used to taking narcotics. And so when you give them narcs, the doses are different. And I, I found that, you know, certain cultures deal with pain a lot better than we do. The Somalis were extremely resilient. I mean, you guys, you guys are coming to be shot all over and they're just completely coherent and not really overwhelmed by the, the pain. Did you ever train in the United States with the fentanyl? You mentioned the local indigenous or the pain medications. Did you do any U.S. training to improve um, skills? No, they wouldn't let us. They wouldn't let us use any of the medications we have. And so I brought this up as in 
a point of contention for me personally of, of something I think they could do better. I think there's a sense in military medicine that we all just want to abuse meds. I, I broke a few of my fingers on a training event during my selection with the Jaws of Life. It broke a lot of the fingers that were stuck in a door because they used to have the hydraulic Jaws of Life. My hands got stuck inside. It was snapping my fingers. And that was the first time I received morphine for an injury. And then I knew how morphine felt. I knew what it actually did for me with orthopedic injury. And so there's a lot of value in guys understanding medications through experience. When I went through Dr. Hagman's course years ago at OEMS, they were using nitrous oxide. They wouldn't let us use nitrous because they thought we were going to abuse it on deployment. And, and can't believe they probably would have got abused in a little bit. But nitrous is a, was a great treatment at the time because we were doing arterial blood gases on each other and we could care less about it when we were doing it. So in the fast ones, where we initially had those, we were doing fast ones on each other using nitrous to take the edge off. But, but the, the short answer would be no. There was never a, an approach to get guys comfortable with what the medications did to them. And I think ketamine is a good example of that. Like ketamine became this voodoo magic that we, we were told would work, but we had no, I, I don't know who the first guy was that ever had the, the cojones to use ketamine for a patient. I was scared to kill somebody with pain medication all the time. When, when they gave us morphine, they said, you're going to shut the respiratory system off. You do this wrong. And, and so you became, you become kind of gun shy with medications. And guys like yourself on the sur surgical side, you guys know exactly how they work. You're not scared of them. You use them effectively. The, the line operator or tactical medic need that same confidence with pain medications because they are intimidating for sure. So I think we would all recognize that medicine is a team sport, especially trauma and combat casualty care from the point of injury all the way through the roles of care, CASVAC, AERAVAC. Is there any particular case that you were involved in that you would say, and again, it's a team sport, a lot of people are involved, but you'd say, man, that was an amazing save. Someone that that you participated in the care of that patient, maybe not from the start to finish, yeah, but you- Oh, no, yeah, actually, I was in Helmand province and one of the 18 deltas that was kind of in and out of that, it was Fob Price, was in and out of his clinic. He thought I was a SEAL corpsman because I was with the SEAL team. And I don't know if he would have called me if he knew I was a PJ. And I was a little bit better at my medical skills at this point, but we had a couple of A&P guys that got shot up at a checkpoint and they were riddled with bullets. One guy was shot over 20 times. So he called me over there. And so we treated, we had three patients come in there. We treated all three of them together, kind of high five and working each, each patient. Did a lot of lightsaving interventions on those, those guys. And at the end, he found out I was a PJ and he was surprised. And it was, it was kind of funny for me because we always fought the stigma that we were these you know, kind of clueless medics. We had a lot of years of, of working to overcome that stigma, especially within the 18 Delta community. But that was the first time that I'd worked with another medic, a, a really highly competent medic. He'd been around for a while. I was a senior 18 Delta. And, uh, and these guys were really, I mean, they were dying and we certainly saved their lives for sure. You, you've described us a little bit of a, a PJ is known as being a jack of all trades. And so someone who is well-trained in a lot of areas such as dive, airborne, survival, invasion. What did you find was your most challenging military combat task and uh, independent of the medical care? I think for a PJ, I think the ropes aspect is, is really challenging. I mean, it's really complicated. It's a thinking man's game, but it's also it, it, extremely physical and demanding and it can be extremely dangerous. And so 
being on a really precarious ledge and having to figure out a very complex mechanical advantage to move a patient up a sequence of ledges, I, I think is the most challenging aspect of being a PJ for me. Some guys love it. They love dangling on the side of a mountain up one piece of pro. I don't typically like hanging off of a nut that's jammed in a crack inside of a rock. But I, I think that's, that's a, a really high level skill that not a lot of people in the military can do. And PJs do it exceedingly well, and they've done it in combat. And so I think that's the aspect that I'd, I'd call out. You talked a little bit about the ethical training or the ethical expectations that, that PJs would have. And as a medic, if you find yourself in a position where you're carrying what you've got on your back, and so it's not an unlimited supply of stuff, and yeah. you have to be able, you have to make the decision of how am I going to use this stuff in a situation where I may need more stuff than I have. How how do you yeah. how do you process that? Well, I took it one step further and say that we also have the dilemma of sometimes working with partner forces and Americans, and your obligation is to provide for everybody, but you can't provide the same standard of care if everyone gets hurt, right? And we're faced with that all the time. And so there's an expectation that you put your teammates first. It's an unspoken one, but it exists. And I, I would assume that every single tactical medic will tell you this, or maybe they won't tell you, but they think that. And then when you work with the partner force, you're like, okay, how far are my supplies going to go? If I save all their lives, then one of the Americans gets shot and they die, that's, that's a big deal. And you guys might understand what I'm talking about from your, your aspect, even being in a clinical setting, but. I've had good experiences with teams of guys where I was able to cross-load enough equipment across assault force to really parse those things together in a mass casualty event. But I think that contingency planning comes into play where you have different echelons of resupply. And so any good PJ will have things stationed in vehicles and aircraft and ready to airdrop. And so when things get bad, you're going to get this level next and this level next. And so we're... We are great planners, and I think that our, our wives hate us for that, most PJs, because we're, we have to think every different level of the operation. We don't get the luxury of saying, my action's on, or to put this explosive breach on a door, and then I'm in the house and clearing, and then I'm done. On target, you're going through the explosive breach, you're on a clearance, and then injury. Okay, now exfil. Now, how are you working from exfil to higher level of care? And so it, it, it's when it happens, and it doesn't happen all the time, it's a nut roll, and I think that we mitigate some of that stress through planning and staging and equipment. So one other question about medications. I mean, you're the doc for these small units, right? You're out there in the front line. You're basically the medical person. And I haven't been deployed with tier one units, but I suspect that they want to be do everything they can to enhance performance. And whether that involves give me some stuff to help me get my adrenaline up. And then when I don't need any more, give me something to knock me out so I can get the sleep I need. You're right. And it's like, hey, hey doc, I want this medication. They're like, well, what's your ailment? They're like, no, I want value. I want this. You're like, well, can I at least assess you? And with senior guys, you deal with that all the time. Guys, I, I want tramadol. I want this many milligrams. Then I want this to put me to sleep. And you're like, do you want me to do my job or it would be like me going to a, a doctor demanding some kind of narcotic and like, hey, guy, this doesn't feel right. And then you also have to manage what are guys taking legally? Are they taking steroids on the deployments? Are they taking HTH and all this other stuff? And are they going to be honest with you? Do they trust you enough to tell you? 
And you need to build up that trust because you want to be able to take care of them where they're at and understand that these are potential limitations. When you talk about high altitude medicine, a lot of things that are taking could affect the things that you want to give them for things like prophylactic for AMS and stuff like that. Ambien was really insidious. And I, I think Ambien was a, a terrible drug. I mean, we use that and we use uppers and downers and uppers and downers for deployment after deployment. And most guys got, they weren't addicted to Ambien, but they were reliant on Ambien to make them go unconscious. What we learned later after getting smarter about sleep, which all of us, every high performing soft guy cares about sleep, probably because they're not getting it, uh, but they want it. We started realizing that Ambien wasn't giving us any of the deep sleep or restorative sleep that we, were, we needed. It was making you go unconscious. Guys were usually mixing with alcohol to go to sleep. And it was insidious. I used Ambien a lot too. And you had to because you would take stimulants all day, all night. You had to go to sleep or maybe you were just coming to country, you get on cycle. And so that was definitely a factor for me and the guys I worked with. I did have the fortune or a good fortune of taking a simulate once for, we were doing a 48 hour operation. And I always, I messed this name up too, but it was basically like an Adderall medication. The guys were taking that for a whole deployment and then they came home and you had some drug addiction. You came home, it happened at Fort Bragg and guys or I started using methamphetamines. It wasn't a ton of people, but it was a few guys. I think that that happened because you opened the floodgates to medications that they were band-aids. They weren't necessarily solutions. And so I feel really confident leaving the unit that I left. I think it's in a great place. Mindfulness, you know, a lot of the older guys roll their eyes at it, but meditation, getting guys into the right rhythms, good sleep hygiene, all those factors that allow you to maybe not becoming so dependent on things like Ambien or, or high doses of Benadryl. So we'd be remiss if we didn't discuss this question with you. So you participated in a mission that was somewhat memorialized by the movie Captain Phillips, where a merchant mariner was taken by Somali pirates in 2009. Can you tell us your role in that? And were there any problematic medical challenges during that event? Yeah. So I was the jet master for a small team of guys that went in early. It was over Easter. I remember making Meridian phone calls from the fantail of the, of the Bainbridge. But yeah, we went down there with a, a small group of the assault squadron came in up north. Not a lot of the guys came to where we were at and where the actual hostage situation was. So when I first went out there, there was an injury. One of the pirates was stabbed in the hand and we convinced them to come onto the, the fantail and I would treat them. And so I don't know the kid's name. He ended up going to New York, getting tried. I think he's in prison. Maybe he's out by now. But he had a stab wound in his hands and I did a nerve block on his wrist. So my pain management game was, was on point that day. I didn't do any sutures on him at, at the time. I was like, this doesn't really necessitate it. It was a clean exit wound on it. Sorry, entrance wound on it. I, uh, I cleaned it real good, bandaged it, splinted it. And then I convinced him that he should stay with me for following care. I gave him some antibiotics and he ended up staying with us during the whole duration of the hot's address. You so we put a little bit more favor and the, the actions on by keeping him with us. He stayed there. He was actually on the back of the fantail when all the shooting was happening. You know, I had my, my, my foot on his back. So he didn't jump off the back of the, the Bainbridge. But yeah, I mean, we didn't realize how big of a deal that, that op was. That discovery special is kind of funny because they have, they say it's two Navy SEALs coming off the 60 with Phillips and it's me, my face blacked out. We didn't think it was that big of a deal at the time. We, had, we ended up going back on the Bainbridge and responding to another attempted hijacking of another ship right afterwards with a really small group of guys. 
But that was the medical treatment I performed. Everyone else was KIA. I, there was nothing I was going to do for the guys in the actual lifeboat. So, now how prepared are PJs for prolonged field care scenarios? So, my guys at, at my former unit are very prepared. It's something that we train against if we know they're going to that environment. And so now we're very deliberate. Okay, you're going to this outstation. You're going to be the only provider. You need to be comped and capable at kind of remote medicine, also extended care. And, and candidly, like a lot of this came out of my experiences of living within safe houses. And I would come back and I'm like, I, I wasn't trained to do what I was doing. And our doctors hated the fact that I would go down range and I would figure it out. And I would go to the medical office before I deploy and they'd have all the books they bought for the doctors and I would just steal one of everything. They're my Pelican box. And I knew I'd read it eventually at these outstations, you're bored. And I would start getting just crazy requests from guys that are out there, agency guys, ground branch guys would come up to me and be like, hey man, I got this problem. She'd be like, all right, let me look at the book. And so I'd go to the CDMT and I'd read, how do, how do I treat this? And it really, it got kind of crazy for me where I was in Somalia and had a lot of hand, hand injuries. I had a lot of guys shooting themselves in the hand for some reason. I had three in one rotation. And one guy came to me and he'd shot himself right in the palm and it blew the back of his hand out. And I was upstairs in one of our houses and they're like, hey doc, can you come down here and check this guy out? I, I was like, send him to the clinic, send him to the local hospital. I don't want to deal with this right now. Cause I was like, I don't know what I'm getting into. And he's going to have to go there anyways. Like if he needs surgery, he's going to go to the doctor. There's a local doctor in, in that in that city. I went down there and I saw it. I'm like, okay, I guess I'll take a shot at this. And his tendons were still connected in his hand. You can see everything. It's completely exposed. It looked like the Terminator. And, and the bones were fragmented, but the tendons were good. And I was like, man, I'll pull up the debris. I'll debris it as best I can. And I'll cover it up. And my goal was to leave the entrance when his palm open and let it basically have all the pus, whatever would come out of his entrance wound. And I, I'm, I must've done 30 stitches on the back of his hand, built this huge cross on his hand. I didn't know if I was doing the right thing or not. Right. Because I was like, man, but he should, he needs to go to a hand surgeon. I'm not that. Um, I do the best I can and give him antibiotics it's every morning and have him come get antibiotics for me because a lot of times they take them and lose them or they wouldn't take them, whatever, or take them all at once. And so I, I called the, our docs back home the next day, I take a bunch of pictures and they put me in touch as like one of my first experiences with telemedicine with a hand surgeon at Womack and described to him what I did. This is before Zoom. We couldn't do teleconference, but I talked him through it. And he's like, that's exactly what I would have done. He goes, you need to watch it. If it becomes infected, here's how you're going to amputate. And I was like, okay, I can do that. And he made the amputation seem really easy. Kind of cutting through the, the carpal and these bones, you kind of go around. I'm like, I got this, I'll build a good stump. It'll be a great amputation. And I fully expected to amputate his hand and he healed perfectly and had full, mo full range of motion, full mobility. And I started to realize that they're a really resilient population. I think that as Americans, we certainly would have got infected because there's nothing I did that was remarkable in my treatment, but, but yeah, he healed fine back on the line. I don't, I don't know how he's doing today, but I probably got a great scar in his hand. Yeah, we did an episode specifically talking to the leader of the Center for Telemedicine. And one of the things is just what you had mentioned. It's, it's not that you need the advice. It's that you need the reassurance that you're doing the right thing. Like that goes a long ways. How do you think that medical providers should train psychologically going into those situations where you're going to be put into a situation that outstretches your resources or your level of training? I think I might unpack that a little bit differently and say that 
you need the support structure back home within your chain of command to empower you and support you when you make mistakes. You're never going to make mistakes doing medicine. Doctors do it all the time. I think having a support network from your leadership to say, hey, look, like this is tough. We're not there. You can't arch your curl back from the States. So I think that's the first step. But I think the resilience in the individual kind of transcends medicine. It's who the individual is. But then you take it one step further and then when you have patients die on you, it's a little bit different. And then when they're close to you and you're treating them, that's different too. And so I don't know that you can be prepared for that. I have some really close friends that have dealt with that, with good friends that died in their arms while they were trying to save their lives with everyone on the team watching them and waiting for them to perform a miracle. And they still struggle with it to this day. And so I don't know that you can prepare somebody for that. I've had the good fortune of not having an American die in my care. That's not a testament to my skills. It's a lot of circumstance, but I have had some partner force folks die on my watch. I think they're outside of my control. That's a little bit easier to, to process than it is a teammate. So we've talked to some folks on the show and, and, and read reports of some difficulties of service members, especially operators, transitioning from the military to civilian world. It's just so different. How was, how was your transitioning from the military into the civilian world? And, and what advice would you give to folks that are kind of coming up on that milestone? I didn't think it was going to affect me personally. I thought I was above it. And uh, I found out really quickly that I use the Shawshank Redemption analogy a lot. You're institutionalized, especially when you're within SAW, you're insulated. I was at that unit at Fort Bragg for almost 18 years. And when I left, you go from being a part of a team uh, to being a part of, hopefully you have a good family dynamic, but a lot of guys have divorced at this point in their career and lives and maybe older kids that aren't there for them as a support network. But I found it to be more challenging than I gave it credit for. And it wasn't like the stereotypical like veteran sitting there in the dark drinking Jameson, but it was definitely a feeling of loss in a process that you have to go through. And so for me personally, once I acknowledged it and kind of worked through it and realized that that life is done, you almost kind of have to mourn it and move on. And you have to find purpose. So if you're sitting on your bed, click your retirement check, romanticizing your your career, I think it's going to be a really challenging transition. If you find purpose outside the military and potentially it's completely different than what you did, it's easy to kind of get lost in yourself and your accolades and think that that's what defines you. And and, and that's why I struggled in transition because I, I had believed my own hype and you quickly realize that you're replaceable. The second you leave, someone else comes in your place and they'd probably do a better job than you. And so coming to terms with that is is essential to move on. Some guys do it faster than others. I'm kind of embarrassed. It took me a year, honestly, but I, I know guys that struggle with this. And so I try to help them, but really you kind of got to help yourself. You have to be ready to, to, to do that. I find that transition, the guys that I've seen be successful, I've seen them bounce back pretty quickly. But if, I would say it took me a good year to kind of stop looking over the fence and, and wondering what's going on. It, it was for my transition, it was right with the exfil of Afghanistan. I remember sitting in the airport in Atlanta watching that debacle. I, it was gut-wrenching to watch. And it affected me more than I thought it would. And I feel like I'm in a different place now, just after a couple of years where I'm not a, I'm not a PJ anymore. I'm not part of their tribe anymore. And that's okay. I've got different priorities. I'm able to be a good dad and a good husband. 
I'm able to be present with people that I wasn't before. And that's become my purpose. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing professionally at this point. I found the best fit for a guy who wants to be part of a high performing team is not taking a nine to five job with a big corporate uh, company. I joined a startup as a co-founder of a company called Firestorm Labs. And we are creating, initially it was to create low cost cruise missiles. And then it morphed into modular UAS that we 3D print. And I love being a part of a small team of entrepreneurs that think the same way operators think. High performers, they're all obsessed about the end state and, and building useful things. And I'm able to still contribute back to my former life, the, the life that I know so well that I've known for my whole adult life. And, and I don't have to be a pain in the butt doing it, right? We're building something useful. I kind of have the cheat codes because I lived it for so long and know what to do. And we're building something that's really going to help them because technology will be the, the differentiator. It's not going to be experienced in this next one because no one's done major combat operations. And I think it's going to be a big challenge and technology will have to meet them halfway. So I'm, I'm grateful to be a part of that solution. So I have to ask, what would you consider a low cost cruise missile? Well, the Air Force defines low cost as two to 20 million. Right. Our systems are sub 100K and very performant. And so what we're trying to show the DOD is that there's another pathway to not be vendor locked, to get what you need and do rapid integration, integration and iteration. So we can produce a part in, in two days where usually a change order on a big system would take a year and a million dollars. We can do it for a thousand dollars in days. And so... We're going to make a lot of people mad because we're going to affect their margins. But I love the fact that we're going to be able to give back to the guys that I served with. Because even on the medical stuff, I wanted simple things when I was in. I wanted a critical care kit. It was my requirement. And I wanted a box, a small Pelican box, about the size of a pro pack. And I wanted it to have my save vent, my pro pack, all my surge kit. And I wanted to have one plug that powered everything. So I go to a safe house, plug it in and basically pop it open and take care of one patient. And it took four years of development going through combat, combat development, all these different vendors, hundreds of thousands of dollars for something literally a kid at some college could have welded together or soldered together for me and put together for a thousand dollars. And the system's broken. People are starting to realize it and now they have options. And so I'm grateful to be a part of the solution. So when the history books are written 50, hundred years from now, how would you want your legacy in military and military medicine specifically to be? Uh, I don't need, I don't need a legacy at all. I don't need to be in that book. I am grateful for my experience. I am grateful to share the little nuggets of wisdom that I might have, mostly my failures, but I don't need to be written that book whatsoever. There's lots of other more capable people. And that's not, that comes from a place of sincerity. I am grateful to be in one piece on the side of the military. I had a great run. I did some great things, I saw some great, went to great places, worked with the best people in the world. And now I am hyper-focused on my eighth grade boys group at church that I get to mentor, I have the privilege of mentoring, raising my two kids who are remarkable children and, and being the husband that I wasn't because I was gone all the time. And so I am content. You guys can have the history books. I don't need that book. So what would you want your great grandchildren to, to learn about you or know about you? I think the second half of my life is going to be what defines me, to be honest with you. And I am really excited. I had a moment of introspection a few, few months ago, maybe weeks ago. And I realized that at my age, I have the exact same amount of years potentially 
that I just lived to live. And that should be a good thing. And so I am trying to set the conditions in my life to, to do just that and to to make this, this second life maybe more remarkable than the first. And so it won't be as sexy. It won't be jumping out of airplanes, but I, I don't think I need to at this point. We've been speaking with retired Air Force Chief Master Sergeant Chad McCoy on Warlock's podcast. Chad, thanks again for sharing your experiences with us and thank you for your service and thank you for sharing your insights. Yeah, thank you, gentlemen, for having me and, and, and thank you for your service as well and, and continuing to serve. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.